This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5pm in the City of London, you are listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele in New York. Uh, let me update you on what is happening with the markets. The FTSE 100 flat at the close. The CAC under a little bit of pressure in Paris as luxury stocks feel the wrath of the Chinese authorities who say they're going to clamp down on excessive wealth. Maybe a few less handbags are going to be bought as a result of that. Uh, the Nasdaq flat in the States, the S&P down by two-tenths of 1%. Uh, the story stateside, definitely one driven by third shots, Alex. Yeah, so the latest news uh, out of the CDC is that we're going to get a third shot here for a booster starting the week of uh, September 20th. Uh, they were saying they're going to give about 100 million shots which by boosters by the end of the year, which quite frankly would be half of those that already have their uh, first shot. So I thought that was a, a kind of interesting as well. It was in a unique uh, reaction in the market. You did have some of a reversal. You had sort of energy starting to outperform as, as well as industrials, and you had the dollar also uh, breaking higher. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see ultimately how this works out. Mm -hmm. um, I still don't kind of fully understand what this is going to mean. Is it going to mean that the reopening trade is back on? I don't is get this, it either. <laughs> is this an indication that perhaps that the the fall off that we're seeing in effectiveness is more significant than people first thought, and as a result of which we could be heading for a tough autumn? I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think there's a lot of questions that surround all of this. We'll wait, we'll watch, we'll see what happens. We'll update you on all the headlines as we get them. Talking of which, Charlie Pellet, over to you. Hi, thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. And here's what's going on. Prime Minister Johnson says the UK will honour, quote, its enduring commitment to the people of Afghanistan by accepting 20,000 refugees and called for international cooperation to prevent a humanitarian disaster. Speaking at an emergency session of Parliament today, Johnson Johnson said his government's, quote, immediate focus is the evacuation of British nationals and local support staff, noting that the situation in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan has stabilized since the weekend and the Taliban are allowing those efforts to proceed. UK inflation eased in July in what is widely seen as a blip on its way to double the Bank of England's target this year. The Office for National Statistics said consumer prices fell back to the 2% goal for the first time since April, easing from a 2.5% increase in June. It is the first time in four months that inflation rose less than economists had expected. Comcast and Viacom CBS are joining forces to launch a new streaming service in Europe, opening a new front against Netflix on the continent. A new service called Sky Showtime will include, pro include programming from both companies' studios and channels, including their streaming services, Peacock and Paramount+. Plus. It will arrive in more than 20 European markets next year. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pallet, thank you very much indeed. So Israel is already starting to administer third shots, third jabs. Uh, it now looks like the United States is going to be doing the same thing. Earlier on, we spoke to Moderna's co-founder and chairman, Nubar Afian. Um, he basically envisions this becoming a rolling process. I, it's not just a third. You're going to be getting a fourth. You're going to be getting a fifth. This is going to be something that is going to become a regular part of life. 
He talked about Moderna's efforts to fight the Delta variant uh, and what comes next in the latest episode of the David Rubenstein show, Peer to Peer. We are, as technology developers, preparing for any eventuality including looking at what our baseline vaccine after two doses does, which so far six months data we have available is very, very robust. We haven't seen any real deterioration of our protection. That's first. Against the Delta virus, we have very strong protection and we expect that will continue for a period of time. The problem is we don't know for how long because you find out when your guard is down after your guard is down. So in order to prepare for that eventuality, we have begun to make variant vaccines, vaccines that have different sequences that if needed, we could accelerate so that we can actually use that. So I think we're gonna work very closely with regulators, FDA, CDC here and, and the Europeans to figure out from an arsenal of, the beauty about the mRNA technology is that we can actually do this type of rapid response versus conventional biotechnology that takes years and years to do the same thing. Uh, that was, of course, um, the chairman and co-founder of Moderna. All right, joining us now for, uh, from the studio in New York here is Max Neeson uh, of Bloomberg Opinion. Hey, Max, are these boosters like, do, okay, first of all, does the science say that we actually need them at this point? Um, you know, that, that depends on exactly what sort of the basis of your decision is. Um, the, the, the decision at this point is mostly about waning efficacy um, on infections, symptomatic disease. What hasn't been nearly as visible is uh, a waning on, on severe disease and, and death. Um, so if, you, if you're trying to prevent the maximum amount of infections, keep people as absolutely safe as possible, um, sure, I, I understand the justification. But you also have to make that decision in the context of the fact that you know there are many people around the world that don't have first doses. And in that context, I, I do think that there's a weaker case. Um, you are, uh, out of Israel, for example, starting to see some evidence of waning on, on severe disease. But I would be point out that it's worth being very cautious about that data because the people that were vaccinated earliest are the people that were at the most risk at the first place, the, the very oldest, the most immunocompromised. Those are the people that are, are going to have the weakest amount of protection, the highest risk of severe disease in the first place. So reasoning from that population uh, to a need for, for much broader boosts, I, I think is, is a little bit um, at least troubling to me ethically in, in the context of the, the slow global rollout. Let's set ethics aside for one moment and talk about the mechanics. As even within the United States, there are plenty of people that haven't had their first shot. Is the administering, is the administering, I can't say that word, um, of, I'm, I'm going to move beyond it. It's like um, of the, of the, yeah, of the <laughs> third shot going to complicate um, encouraging those people to get their first shot? I, I think that that is a real possibility and one that, that I'd hope to see uh, a sort of more laid out and, and uh, detailed plan on how you're going to prevent that. First doses are dramatically more important and more effective at, at reducing spread and, and bad outcomes because you're going from, you know, basically no additional protection uh, of from your uh, on top of your existing immune system or existing immune response to substantially greater as opposed to a, a relatively small, a boost. You know, it's just a very different level. So you want to make sure that you're, you're not diverting. And I am worried about that because it's going to be much easier to get people to 
go get their boosts. These are people that have already gotten vaccinated. They believe in vaccines. So if you're diverting resources and time and attention uh, from that effort, I, I do see a real possibility of of reducing um, or, or sort of not not boosting those initial vaccines as much as you'd like going forward. Kids. You know, that that's the other thing. Um, I, I'd really hope to see an acceleration because that's the biggest group we have right now of people uh, that, that just have you know, don't even have the opportunity to get vaccinated. I'm hopeful that that decision will come soon, that that has to be a real priority as well. Is there a difference between the requirements for boosters for messenger RNA vaccines and adenovirus uh, vector vaccines? So this this is a sort of troubling dichotomy because the people that have a double mRNA boost are the most protected based on all the data we have. Uh, there's data suggesting that, that for example, the one-shot J&J vaccine does produce reduced infection, but because there's less data and because those vaccinations happen later, um, they've been hesitant to, to make the recommendation for them. Uh, and, and also haven't even recommended a, a second shot for, for people that are immunocompromised. I, I would hope to get uh, better guidance on that soon. If there's anywhere that you want to sort of get ahead of the data, I, I think that's one place that makes sense versus, you know, mm-hmm. young younger people that have two mRNA shots. All right, Max Neeson, really appreciate the analysis. Thank you so much, Mac- Max Neeson of Bloomberg Opinion. But you know what, guys? The Bloomberg Dollar Index, right around the highs of the session. Is that a yep. safety trade or is that a U.S. exceptionalism outperformance trade on this? I, I Maybe it's neither. Maybe we're just, you know, treading water till the minutes. I don't know. Yeah, the minutes are coming up, 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll certainly talk about that a little bit later. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. The Delta variant obviously having a significant effect on people's behavior at this point. The UK largely, though, has reopened. But there is still a gap between people working from home and people working in offices. Many people, and I appreciate it as the summer, I use the term loosely, uh, have yet to return to the office. And this is starting to have an impact in terms of the housing market. London private housing rents fell in July compared with a year earlier. It's a similar story when it comes to the uh, to the to the purchase market uh, as well. Basically, London lagging every other region when it comes to house prices. Prices just up 6.3 percent year on year in June. Basically, people don't know whether or not they're going to be working in London or working from home. And many people, as a result of which, um, are not making that decision or they're making the decision to leave and they'll deal with the consequences later. London is suffering as a result of this. You can see this in the property market. We're also seeing the expiry, obviously, of the uh, demand side um, um, push, the demand side push that the British government gave to the housing market. Reid Landberg, UK economics team leader, joining us now on what is happening here. Reid, is this just a temporary phenomenon until we all know whether or not we're coming back to the office? Or do you think London is going to lag after years of outperformance? There's an increasing sense that the property market is actually restructuring to reflect the changes in the way people work. And, you know, not everybody knows how much they're going to be able to work from home, whether it's going to be two days a week or five. But uh, there's a real sense that it's more than more than they were before. And, you know, therefore, people are putting a higher value on on homes where they have space for an office. They're putting higher value on homes outside of London where they have access to, uh, to, to green space and space outside. 
So, you know, what we're seeing in both the rental market and the, the purchase market is restructuring. You know, property values are going up outside the city, mm-hmm. uh, further away, and they're, they're not doing well at all in London. So how does the BOE look at that? Because we're, we're dealing with something somewhat similar uh, here in, in, in the U.S., except the rental market may be a bit different. But what does the BOE think about it? So the Bank of England is, you know, they're really concerned about inflation at the moment. And housing is not captured in the headline inflation figures, but they also have a duty to maintain fiscal uh, uh, financial stability in markets. So they look at it and say they don't want markets getting overheated. So, you know, they don't want to see a boom and bust cycle in the housing market. They don't want to see people overextended on mortgages. And there's, there's sort of no sense at this moment that people are overextended on mortgages or that banks are writing loans that they can't afford. Um, so the bank seems pretty relaxed about it, but it, it has raised an eyebrow. The pace of house price growth has raised an eyebrow at the bank. And, you know, they're also looking at it as an employer. They're, a, they're, they're one of the oldest employers in London in the financial sector, and they have a lot of workers in London. Uh, so they're grappling with this issue themselves. Reid, was today's inflation number, which took a bit of a tumble, a blip? And if so, why? So the Bank of England's expectation is that inflation is going to rocket forward to about 4% at the end of this year. And of two months ago, the reading was 2.5%. And we were expecting 2.3% today. But it fell back to 2%. It's a slight moderation of from where we were before. But almost nobody expects that 2% is going to remain where inflation is. The real forecast is that inflation is going to pick up from here, mm-hmm. that the dip we saw today was due to base effects, and we'll see more inflation coming through. The real question is, what happens next year after inflation peaks? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it remain that high or does it slip back afterward? And in today's figures, we get a little sense yeah. that that uh, inflation could tick down afterward. Reed, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. I most definitely do not want to be an economist right now. Uh, Reed Landberg, UK economy uh, team leader, talking to us on inflation and the UK housing market. Thanks very much. All right, next up, we'll talk about Europe, UK, in relation to the US and Afghanistan. It's not the best picture. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. It would be a mistake for any country to recognize any new regime in Kabul prematurely or bilaterally. We will judge this regime based on the choices it makes and by its actions rather than by its words. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, speaking in the House of Commons a little bit earlier on. That was the calmest moment, I would argue, of events in the House. Um, Really frenzied activity, the kind of activity we haven't seen in the House, the kind of debate we haven't seen in the House for really quite a long time. There is deep concern about the way that the Afghan regime has fallen, the previous Afghan regime has fallen, how easily the Taliban were able to take over the country, and ultimately what comes next. Everybody seems to have been caught on the hop. The concern also is that this changes the calculus of the relationship between Europe, between the UK and Washington, D.C. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion, joining us now to give us her thoughts on this. How pivotal a moment 
is the collapse of the regime in Kabul in terms of the way that it's going to rebalance the relationship between the UK, Europe and the US? Yeah, I think the the big debate right now is 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 not necessarily over the fact of the U.S. withdrawal, but the the way that it happened, the um, the the failure of intelligence uh, leading up to it, which ensnared also uh, the U.K. government, because Boris Johnson um, only months ago was saying that the Taliban uh, were not going to be able to to have a claim a military victory. So uh, he was misled. There's a lot of anger, I think, among the Tory backbenches, which include a number of uh, MPs who, who fought or served in Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, the, the feeling uh, in the chamber today was very raw, and there was plenty of criticism for the government, uh, you know, from both sides of the, uh, of, the, of the House of Commons. And so, you know, that has really focused attention on two things. And the first is what policy is going to be put in place to resettle um, and offer asylum to those Afghans who are vulnerable and fleeing the Taliban. And then the second one, as you rightly say, is how does this affect the relationship with the U.S.? How does this affect uh, uh, Britain's own sense of its uh, foreign and security policy? And bear in mind, you know, just this winter, the U.K. put out an integrated review that was a sweeping review of foreign and defense policy. There was two small mentions of Afghanistan Mm -hmm. in there, basically to the effect that we will handle it, you know, within the coalition. So that just shows how much they were were relying on the U.S. for this uh, and how much of a rethink is now required. Right. So does the rethink. Okay. so then they think about it. Can the U.K. and Europe really beef this up? Well, I mean, there's not much they can do in Afghanistan without the U.S., right? That was Boris Johnson's uh, point to Parliament. He was practically, you know, pleading with MPs to to comprehend this basic, you know, the basic calculus of the intervention in Afghanistan. As David Cameron pulled the U.K. out in effectively 2014, there was not much NATO allies could do without U.S air support, logistics, money, and Johnson was sort of saying, look, this was Washington's decision, um, and we're going along with it, and and Parliament really wasn't having it. They were saying, well, you, uh, you know, why why wasn't Britain more prepared? Why was there no uh, effort, serious effort, to keep some presence on the ground for humanitarian purposes and what can be done now. So, I, I, you know, I think this is a, a moment of recalibration for Britain, but also for the EU. And as we've talked about many times, relationships between the UK and the EU haven't been the friendliest um, in recent years due to Brexit. But this is going to be um, a, a challenge, I think, for the non-US NATO allies to kind of rethink where uh, they want to kind of concentrate security uh, policy and try to also repair some of the damage that's been done by the manner of this withdrawal. So just to, just kind of talk through a little bit more detail. How practical is it post-Brexit that, that Europe, including the U- UK, is able to develop a more unified security architecture that would allow it to to deal with threats that it faces? And and. How on what sort of time frame could that operate? Yeah, I think the reality is it's very limited. Um, it's limited on two fronts. It's limited in terms of capacity, although you know we've heard a lot in the last 
uh, year or two, even dur- including during the entire Trump administration, pledges to spend 2% of GDP on defense. Um, the reality is that there's huge reliance on American defense capabilities, on air support in places like Afghanistan. So there's, there, there are capacity constraints, although together um, the, the military capabilities of uh, the non-U.S. NATO allies are still significant. But the bigger constraint is uh, you know, is is willpower, really, because it takes a lot to put together some of these missions. I mean, that said, there will be, um, I think, NATO involvement that is not U.S.-led in, uh, in, you know, places that are closer to Europe, and, and they're going to have to look more mm-hmm. at where that can be done. And I think we're going to, we're going to see NATO trying to signal that it is still, um, it is still a, a force and a presence in those things. It's just not clear where. Yeah. But, you know, for, for all of these countries, the immediate question is refugees, refugees, refugees. Um, so unrelated to Afghanistan, quickly, I mean, where can the UK and Europe fill a void or where else do they need to sort of look at? Because the idea was that once President Trump left, President Biden was going to reset relations. And maybe to some extent, like on climate, he has aligned with Europe and the UK. Yes, and the rhetoric has been there. We saw it at the G7. We saw it with, you know, Biden's phrase that was played over and over here, America is back. But the Afghan withdrawals, I think it's been such a wake-up call because it's a reminder that the U.S., appetite for intervention, for enforcing the rules-based international order, as we used to, you know, uh, maybe naively call it, uh, is, is so much diminished, even with Trump gone. And, you know, we've you know, now seen the U.S. sort of reinforcing its, its commitment to Taiwan. And I think that's where America's focus is right now. It's on Asia. So for Britain and Europe, they're going to have to think very carefully about what kind of presence they need to you know, for yep. example, stem the drug trade coming from Afghanistan, any resurgence of the terrorist threat, yep. those kinds of things. Therese, always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, London. It is 5.30 where you guys are, 12.30 right here in the U.S., I don't get it. This is what's happening in the market. So you had uh, a buy the dip Monday. You had a buy the dip, but we ended lower Tuesday. Then you had kind of a buy the dip sort of today. And if you take a look at what is doing well within the S&P, just to give you some perspective, the best performing equities. So, so you have lows. Sure, they beat estimates and they raise. The bar was also lower because Home Depot disappointed on, on their comp sales. But then you have um, TJX, which is the third best performing stock. OK, that's the reopening trade, kind of. But then you have Carnival, the seventh best performing stock on the S&P. That's a reopening trade. Uh, but then you have the Delta variant and questions about the booster now. Looks like we're going to be getting that here in the U.S. So if you get that, good for you, because we sure don't hear. <laughs> um, there are a bunch of other stories kicking about here. Uh, one of them is China and the crack done on tech that has ripple effects in Europe and has ripple effects for just investors who want exposure to China. Lots of other headlines to catch up on. So here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. And here's what's going on. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 in the UK rose to the highest since March as cases increased following the removal of many restrictions around social gatherings. Public Health England says more than 6,300 people are currently in the hospital with the virus. 
the success of the country's vaccination program has allowed the government to remove legal rules around distancing as the focus shifts to reviving the economy. London private housing rents fell in July compared with the year earlier as the ability to work from home meant that being close to city center offices was no longer a priority for workers. The Office for National Statistics says the 0.1% decline set the UK capital apart from other regions where rental prices climbed by almost 2% on average. Prime Minister Johnson says the UK will honor its enduring commitment to the people of Afghanistan by accepting 20,000 refugees and called for international cooperation to prevent a humanitarian disaster. Speaking at an emergency session of Parliament today, Johnson said his government's immediate focus is the evacuation of British nationals and local support staff, noting that the situation has stabilized since the weekend and that the Taliban are allowing those efforts to proceed. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. I deeply appreciate it. So uh, I was just talking about what was going on uh, in terms of China and Tencent, etc. So the deal was that uh, Tencent's earnings, they definitely fell short of estimates. Uh, sales rose just 20%. That's about $21.3 billion uh, in the last quarter. But that was pales in comparison to the growth rate, growth rate that we saw. In terms of, say, financial services, for example, uh, that expanded 40% uh, versus, say, online advertising, which was just 20%. But the idea is that you got a lot of clouds circulating uh, in China. And Tencent today warned investors to brace for more regulatory curbs on China. So, uh, Guy and I talked to uh, Richard Kramer, Arete Research. Uh, he is a hold rating on Tencent about Tencent as well as the broader tech sector. We just today had news of 43 apps which were cited for excessive data collection. And Tencent's Weixin, WeChat, which is one of their principal apps, was one of them alongside their video and their maps product. Now, the company says it's going to embrace regulation and is is ready to uh, accept whatever is required of it. But we don't know when these regulations will be finalized and then put into practice. Richard, how much worse does it get? How much more difficult does it become? I understand there's going to be potentially more regulation on the data collection front coming Friday. So there is uh, antitrust regulation, which is about exclusive relationships between any Chinese company and merchants or, or folks using their platform. There's regulations about data collection, which strike to the heart of targeted advertising businesses, even though Tencent would argue that it has less exposure there than some of the other firms. Uh, and, and it has adhered to the rules more strictly than some of the others. Uh, and as you're rightly pointing out, uh, their education has been very much in the crosshairs. And that has had a knock-on impact on Tencent because the education sector was very large in advertising on Tencent. Mm -hmm. And even though they saw very good advertising growth, they suggested it would come off next quarter because they would miss the full quarter of impact of uh, the, the education sector not being present in the advertising market. So let's get to that because the online advertising revenue increased 23%. Uh, fintech, other mm -hmm. business services increased 40%. What's going to mm -hmm. be the growth rate? Like the growth rate, we can start really starting to model here. Well, unfortunately, we don't know right now because, for example, the online games growth rate was the lowest that you saw in, in mm -hmm. many years, uh, really ever, but it was against very tough comps. And with the 40% growth rate you saw in fintech and business services had come down from 47% last quarter 
And half of that is obviously the fintech business, which is going to be very tightly regulated um, by, uh, by the Chinese authorities. Uh, there's also a number of products that Tencent has, uh, analogous to Zoom, Shopify, CRM, Microsoft, uh, or Google Docs, but they're not monetizing them right now. And their ability to monetize those products is going to be very much dependent on uh, keeping on the right side of the regulator. How do we value this company, given what is going on? How do we value it when we look at it from a regulatory point of view? How do we look at, at it from a portfolio point of view? This is a company that has huge numbers of businesses that it's invested in. Some of those may yeah. or may not have been IPO'd. Some of those may or may not have been IPO'd in the United States. All of this is in flux at the moment, Richard. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why the investment banks all have buy ratings on all these stocks all the way down is because they have a huge vested interest in continuing the $14 billion of capital raising that took place in China Internet uh, thus far this year and the $500 million of fees they got from that. So uh, $0.10, cents, $223 million billion of listed investments is about half in China Internet, and that's fallen by about 10% since the end of the quarter that they just reported. Now, alongside that, they have about 1,000 VC investments, many of which are slated or expected to be monetized by taking them public on exchanges such as in the U.S. And clearly that route to monetization of all those assets that Tencent has built up is going to be very difficult, if not completely blocked in the near term. So monetizing mm. those extra assets, we put a very large conglomerate discount on them. Partly because if you went to sell these large stakes in, in companies like JD or Meituan or, or others or, or, or Didi, uh, the stock prices would crash. And partly because uh, the, the ability to directly monetize these stakes is very difficult. What you're putting up there in terms of the chart shows mm -hmm. you that the business is, is basically split between gaming, uh, fintech and, and cloud services and advertising. And the one area was, which was especially disappointing were the social network services, which are all the content services that, that Tencent hosts in video and music and literature and so forth. Yeah. And again, those had very tough comps. And so there are going to be increasing regulations on the types of content that the Chinese companies are able to provide to uh, Chinese consumers. That was Richard Kramer, uh, Arete research talking to us about what is happening with Tencent, what's happening with these Chinese stocks. Alex, some people believe they're uninvestable. He he almost kind of went there, but basically mm -hmm. said we're in a really difficult situation, a state of flux, very hard to get a kind of realistic valuation on what these businesses are actually kind of should be at um, because the regulatory environment is changing and changing so fast. Yeah. And, and I guess what do you do if you're just a regular investor? Um, like if you're HSBC with a huge asset management arm or if you're like a private equity firm that has a lot of boots on the ground there, like, okay. But other than that, like if you're a regular investor, how do you get exposure to China, which you would need in a diversification sense in your portfolio? But how do you do that safely when you have this sort of, you know, redistribution of wealth that seems to be also coming down from the Chinese government? I don't know. It seems really hard. It does. We're going to talk more about tech next. NVIDIA numbers out shortly. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's stay with tech for a second. Uh, NVIDIA is down three-tenths of one percent in uh, the market today. It reports after the bell. Um, 
it feels like it's poised for pretty strong results, but there's lots of interesting things that we can kind of dig from that. Remember, it wants to buy ARM in the UK. That's kind of up for grabs a little bit. Uh, how does the chip shortage wind up affecting them? How does crypto wind up affecting them? Um, so let's bring in Ed Ludlow, a Bloomberg West Coast correspondent. Hey, Ed, what are you watching? Yeah, NVIDIA is a really interesting company because it touches so many of the big stories we're following right now. Um, you know, it saw massive growth in the first quarter and then had the kind of audacity to say it could have been even more were it not for the chip shortage. So I think with lead times on semiconductors still so stretched, Wall Street will look to NVIDIA for a sense of whether the supply imbalance in semiconductors is improving. And then, as you know, we discussed earlier on TV, TV guys, that it has this really interesting link to crypto mining, where it's benefiting in a boost from demand from crypto miners for its graphics cards. But that is both a good and bad thing for NVIDIA, because it doesn't want that industry to take supply away from its other customers, and then for demand to drop off a cliff. How does it separate the two? Is it separating the two? I think Wall Street kind of sees NVIDIA as very savvy. So what used to happen is, and you can even go on eBay, just go on eBay and type in NVIDIA graphics cards and you'll see the elevated aftermarket pricing from crypto miners, essentially, who want to use these graphic cards for crypto mining. What it did starting last quarter is it started making specific chips for crypto mining. And these were essentially semiconductors that had been tainted or damaged during the manufacturing process. They only work for crypto mining. And in offering that, it protected the supply of kind of higher end graphics cards that NVIDIA has for uh, gaming, which is it's, you know, a big market for them. At the same time, it took those gaming chips and altered its capabilities so they're not as good for, for chip making. And, and it, as I said, it's a double-edged sword. They've got a real top-line boost from sales of those specific uh, crypto chips. But what happens if they all go away? Remember, you know, having supply constraints is great until the moment that you have too many chips mm -hmm. and there's a glut. Right. That's what makes it like a cyclical business and an industry at the end of the day. Um, Intel thinks that's not going to happen, but you never know. Um, okay. Where, where are we with Arm, UK company that NVIDIA wants to buy? I think the biggest surprise in preview of these earnings is that across Wall Street, nobody th seems to think that there will be any commentary on this around earnings. Um, Simply put, the arm deal faces regulatory scrutiny on different continents, right? Not just here in the United States, but in the United Kingdom and in China as well. You know, especially some of those uh, chip makers that have a vested interest. The, the concern basically is that if NVIDIA does successfully buy arm, it controls all facets of the chip making process other than um, fabrication. You know, it's designing chips uh, for everyone, as well as having its own chips. And, and there is basically um, a market power issue or market power question around that. If say it couldn't buy ARM, that's a lot of kind of deal flow that it hasn't delivered upon. Is there a sense that this company needs to do deals? Good question. I mean, there are parts... So. What arm? Uh, sorry, forgive me. What Nvidia has done is corner a pretty big market, which is data centers and gaming. You know, tangentially, a, a big investment into cloud computing means more demand for data center chips. And what it's the way it's done that is basically say we have the best artificial intelligence chips. Increasingly, cloud computing and gaming relies on artificial intelligence. So the product is there. Their chip is just simply better than say an Intel for example. But they've proven that the third-party manufacturing model works. They rely heavily on TSMC, heavily on Samsung. And for NVIDIA, 
that works for them to have their chips fabricated elsewhere. For Intel, for example, it's not working right. And you see Intel make these massive investments to diversify and change its business. I don't think anyone on Wall Street thinks that NVIDIA should do that. The thing with ARM is it's a design thing. You mm. offer the designs and have them fabricated elsewhere. Um, but, but I don't see any pressure from Wall Street that they're kind of missing out somehow. The concern from Wall Street is that NVIDIA is more vulnerable to a cyclical uh, semiconductor industry. Ed, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. Ed Ludlow, Bloomberg West Coast correspondent joining us there. He'll be tracking those numbers for us. All right. The other event is the minutes coming out in just over an hour's time. We're going to get you revved up. We're going to get you pumped, totally psyched, really into it. With Mike McKee, he's going to say nothing. It's important. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. All right. An hour's time. You're going to get the Fed minutes from the last meeting. So, uh, Michael McKee is here with us. Mike, you'll be so pleased to let us know that I, I set you up really well. I was like, we're going to get you pumped. It's going to be great. Mike's <laughs> going to be here. He's not going to say anything. What I meant to say was that you're going to tell us we're not going to learn that much from the minutes. <laughs> well, we might. Um, there's what? always the potential for surprise, although as people have pointed out, the Fed does its own editing of the minutes so they can, you know, uh, point you in the direction they want you to go in reading them. I suspect we will maybe see something about how they are thinking about tapering in terms of the mechanics of it, because they need to discuss that and they would get staff presentations on how that could go. And so there might be something on that in there. I don't know that we'll get a whole lot of detail about when the timing. Uh, we will probably hear a dis or read a discussion of the timing aspect, and it will say some felt this and a few felt <laughs> that, uh, but whether it will give us any clarity on where they're going, uh, I kind of doubt. It was also uh, the 28th of July. And yeah, that's the, yeah. we've, we've got ancient a, history, yeah. Mike. Well, it, it's not so ancient, but we have had a turn uh, in the news. <laughs> we've got a COVID outbreak around the world that has really come to the fore since then. And so it's got to raise some uncertainty among members of the Fed. And so we don't know yet. Uh, you know, They've all said they want to see more data. So I don't know if anything is going to point us in the direction of, of Jay Powell next week at Jackson Hole saying we're going to move up the timing. No. There's no way, right? How do they have enough data at that point? Like, what could Powell realistically say when we're in the, the, the zone where we're all maybe getting booster shots here in the U.S., where the return to office is getting pushed back? We don't know how we're going to deal with living with the virus on a uh, it's not one and done situation. How can he what, what's the word he could possibly use? <laughs> uh, substantial further progress. That's three. Well, he's going to say that, but it, um, I mean, uh, how can he adapt that? Yeah, in any but way? yeah, and, and and you would ask why he would do that when five days later they get the next jobs report. Uh, interestingly enough, on the morning he gives his speech, we get the latest PCE inflation reading. So if that comes in high again, does he want to be out on a limb saying, "Man, inflation's going to come down and okay, we're going to be able to taper"? Uh, so I suspect that. Um, you know, just for a lot of reasons, there won't be a lot of guidance out at Jackson Hole. The issue in the minutes is whether they talked about him talking about it and whether they said, yeah, you can go ahead and lay out some of our case. Is the market positioned for a taper? What I'm trying to understand is if he, do, 
if if we get a, into a situation where they decide actually they don't have enough information and they are worried about the Delta and as a result of which we're going to delay, is the market already positioned for the taper or has the market already repositioned for the arrival of Delta? I, you know, I, I'm i not an expert on the market, uh, but the... But they're going to be worried the about this. I, the analysis I've been reading from uh, people who are, who sit on the trading desks, is that the market may not be ready quite for a tapering based on the idea that inflation is too high. Because the market has bought into the Fed's view that inflation is not going to be a long-term phenomenon. It's going to come down. And so inflation expectations could go up if the Fed decides to move more quickly. And that would uh, you know, raise the possibility that they become unanchored and the Fed worries about that. So mm -hmm. that's another reason why they m may want to uh, be slower. A couple questions about, I mean, it, it does feel like employment, though, at the end of the day, and the wealth gap that we see is going to be key to how the Fed thinks about that overshoot of inflation. How do we look at something like housing and what the pandemic did to housing that will just wind up exacerbating all of this? It could. The Fed's view is that the banks are in a lot better shape. They're not making the liar loans that they made in the No, but the, in terms of the, the how expensive stuff is yeah. and rents, et cetera. Well, their argument is they're not really contributing to that. What's contributing to that is, that, yes, we have low mortgage rates, but even if they weren't buying mortgage bonds, we'd have low mortgage rates. And there's a lot of pent-up demand. And because of various reasons, including the cost of lumber, the inability of builders to get uh, construction workers, we have a shortage of homes for sale. And therefore, uh, at this point, you do have these rising prices, but it's not something that monetary policy can cure. There is some evidence that consumers are concerned that inflation is here already. There was some evidence of that within the University of Michigan data. There's evidence of that elsewhere. How concerned will the Fed be about that? Well, they're concerned about it, but again, this gets back to the inflation expectations they look at to see if they become unanchored. It should, uh, people should be seeing more inflation because there is more inflation. The question is, do they expect it to last? Do they expect it down the road to the point where they're going to ask their bosses for more money to overcome inflation? And the companies raise prices to then pay. On, on top of their already raised prices for goods, they raise their prices to pay additional salaries, and that's when we get into trouble. And so at this point, the Fed it doesn't see that dynamic happening. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Michigan numbers, the one-year inflation number went up, but the five-year, the three- to five-year did not. So it's not really a, a, an issue yet, but it's something they keep a close eye on. So quickly, why is it not an issue? Because all we keep hearing are how every company's increasing wages. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we hear a number of anecdotal reports about that, and a lot of companies have paid up, especially in the service sector. Less of a problem in that the service sector is the lowest paid sector, but um, what you haven't seen yet is an ongoing series of pay increases. A lot of companies have paid bonuses, and that's a one-time thing, and if they raise your salary a little bit uh, and then stop, that's that's the question. Do they do they feel like they have to come back and give you a raise next year? Um, obviously, they have to give mm. Alex a raise next year, but everybody else. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm holding my breath for that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Thank you, uh, Mike. Mike thank you very much indeed. 2 p.m. Eastern time, 7 p.m. here in the UK is when those minutes will arrive on your Bloomberg screen. Mike McKee standing by to provide a great deal of analysis. That's it. We're done with Wednesday. Uh, Alex and I will be back tomorrow to run you through the day's actions. NVIDIA likely to be interesting and we'll digest those Fed minutes. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>